Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, a one-on-one conversation. Clay Jenkinson interviews Jason Mieres, the newly elected Attorney General of the state of Virginia. Jason's an old friend of mine now. I have the greatest respect for him. And now that he's entering into this great office to be the Attorney General of one of the most important states in this country, I wanted to interview him because I wanted to get his thoughts before he gets into the rhythm of his life as Attorney General, what he anticipates, what he might be surprised by, uh, what he considers the flashpoints or the controversial things that he will have to handle, and what is what he thinks an Attorney General can accomplish to set a tone of civility and good government for a place like the Commonwealth of Virginia. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, you've always maintained that a well-informed public can be trusted with self-government. You wrote to Richard Price in January of 1789 that whenever the people are well-informed, they can be trusted with their own government, that whenever things go so far wrong as to attract their notice, they may be relied upon to set them to rights. How do we know when that threshold has been crossed, Mr. Jefferson? The people will know. You know, We are born with the right to self-government, but we're not born with the skill for self-government. It's true we have a moral sense which teaches us what is right and what is wrong almost invariably on every occasion, and the people have a great deal of good sense, and that probably is tool enough. But I'm happier when we educate people well so that they become adept at sorting out truth from lies and good sense from nonsense. So I trust the people, and I believe that the, the people will go wrong from time to time and will be uh, will turn their their attention away and, 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 and corruption will creep into the system or they will be, for a moment at least, swept away by enthusiasm or uh, fanaticism. But in the long run, I think that the good sense, the basic good sense and integrity of the people will make itself known and the people will right the ship uh, and maintain our constitutional republic. I, I don't despair of this, although I do believe that there must be emphatic public education throughout the country to train people in civics so they know how to use their good sense and discernment in the public arena. Public education was always very, very, very important to you, Mr. Jefferson, but the dissemination of information was important as well. In your first inaugural address, you wrote, the diffusion of information and the arraignment of all abuses at the bar of public reason, I deem one of the essential principles of our government. Yes, and that was then when you had a very light media infrastructure, very few newspapers, most of them weeklies, most of them simply reprinting boilerplate from across the seas or what they had picked up from other newspapers around the country. There was not a robust cadre of journalists in my time who sought out the truth, who did investigative reporting, who served as a, a significant watchdog on government the, at the local, state, or national level. In your time, of course, you have a dramatically more emphatic uh, information system, a uh, way of disseminating news, 
uh, a media that is lavishly funded um, and uh, takes itself very seriously uh, as the fourth estate in a free society like yours. And so I believe as long as, as there is no censorship uh, and journalists are able to ferret out the truth to the best of their ability and disseminate that truth as widely as possible, then the people will have the information they need to make good decisions. But they must have that body of information. We can't make good decisions in the dark. And we must educate uh, those people uh, in critical thinking skills so that they can smell out truth and, and discard lies. Finally, Mr. Jefferson, you famously said that people cannot approve what they do not understand, so it's a matter of a, of a free press and an educated public, correct? That is correct, sir. And in your time, the average citizen has more access to the machinery of government, to policies, to decisions, to the works of bureaucracies, uh, to the debates at the local, state, and national level than at any previous moment in the history of the world. If anyone in my time had been uh, aware that at some future date in American history, there would be that much access by average people living in their homes to the workings of government, either within their own state or in faraway Washington, we would have said this guarantees uh, beyond any question the success of the American Republic because the people are up to the challenge of governing themselves. But they must take that responsibility, sir. Indeed. Uh, you cannot be a passive citizen and live in a republic. Uh, it, it's hard work, and it takes eternal vigilance. But just think of it this way. Uh, books were hard to get and extremely expensive in my time. There are hundreds of thousands of books that citizens in your time can have access to free 24 hours a day. You live in the best of all times for public information. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome, sir. citizens welcome to the thomas jefferson hour this week a special conversation between clay jenkinson and someone who's been on the jefferson hour before mr jason mieris yeah thank you david jason mieris is a former member of the virginia assembly you will remember that he invited me to virginia because i received a commendation from the virginia house of delegates for the work that we do here on the Jefferson Hour is a very moving experience to me. And he then later sent the flag uh, that had flown over the Virginia Capitol, Jefferson's Capitol, on the day of my award. And I followed his career. He's an extraordinary young man. And he wrote to me a few weeks ago saying that he, was, he had been elected Attorney General of Virginia, a tremendous achievement for him. And he said, it's a little short notice, but would I like to come to his inauguration? Well, I couldn't. Uh, it was very short notice, but then I wrote back and said, well, I'd like to interview you, and I'd like to interview you now before you take this office, and then interview every six months in the next couple of years and see what you learned that you didn't expect, what surprised you, uh, what the what the great issues were, how this relates to the national concern about voting rights, and so on. And he agreed to it. And so I sat down with him by Zoom and had really a remarkable um, conversation with him. You know, he he's a Cuban-American. 
Uh, he really has the deepest regard for his mother who came uh, from Cuba as a young woman, as a refugee, I think in 1965. He believes so strongly in this country, and he said that his favorite thing to do as a public figure is to go to these naturalization ceremonies in which 50 or 100 new Americans uh, take the oath. And he said that it's really the most extraordinary thing to see the the gratitude of people from the rest of the world when they get to join the club as full-on American citizens. So we talked about the future. We talked about his career. We talked about uh, what's happening in America, and particularly uh, whether he thinks that the the attorney generalship will will lead him into the, the set of fundamental problems we're all trying to wrestle with, or whether it will be more of an administrative post. And I loved when he said he's going to call balls and strikes and to try to keep his own politics out of it. Let's listen to a few segments of the conversation I was able to have with the new Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Mr. Jason Meares. How are you? I am, uh, I'm great. Are you home? I, I am working from my home office. I'm in this weird period where I have not, um, I take office on the 15th and, um, I have a transition office in Richmond, but I was there this week and I have a bunch of duties here back home in Virginia Beach I'll be having to take care of. So like you, this is my office, lots of books on the shelves. There you go. What's the portrait? Who's the person behind you? Uh, that is President Reagan. I thought I could see him there. He's a hero of yours? He is. Uh, his infectious sense of optimism and uh, love of country. And what I appreciate about him is he, uh, I felt, appeal to our better angels as a country and always appreciated in his sense of humor as well, which I think somewhat's lacking in today's political discourse. Yeah, maybe we come back to that. I mean, I don't want to in any way exp um, expose you. I'm not trying to get you to, to wring your hands about the current situation. We may return to it, but what I really want to do is, is, is talk to you about what's happening with you. So yeah, I have you down here as uh, for those who don't know, born in 1976 on February 11th, so it's just yeah. about your first Bicentennial day. baby. Bicentennial baby. Um, that you went to James Madison for your BA? Yes, sir. But then, I think, to Mr. Jefferson's considerable consternation, you went to William <laughs> & Mary thereafter. I, I don't think Mr. Jefferson ever quite got over that William & Mary did not adopt all of his uh, recommendations uh, for the academic, how the, how the structure of William & Mary academically, so he decided to start his own school. It's been interesting. Both schools claim him with deep passion, but obviously Mr. Jefferson's first love was with his baby, University of Virginia. So why didn't they, I mean, not to get lost here, but why didn't they just accept, I mean, it's Jefferson. I mean, if you're talking about architecture, if you're talking about library classification, if you're talking about paleontology, you may as well just defer to him. Uh, you would think there would be wisdom, but all I could think of is uh, the Jefferson we know did not, maybe didn't have the stature at the time, or most likely uh, after serving in a legislative body, um, probably egos got involved. And uh, when that happens, I think sometimes good judgment can go out the window. On the other hand, you can't be sorry that he created one of the world's great universities. No, University of Virginia is one of the jewels of, of the Commonwealth. It's something that all of us are immensely proud of. Uh, I'm proud of the legacy that he left behind there. And um, 
lots of very, very dear close friends of mine are proud University of Virginia graduates. All right. So then you were elected in, let me see here, was it 2015 to the House of Delegates from the 82nd? Yeah, which is the oceanfront of Virginia Beach. So I'm as far east in Virginia as you can get without falling to the Atlantic Ocean. But I like to say America in some ways started in my backyard about a mile and a half from my home is the spot in Cape Henry where the first settlers uh, stopped when they reached the new new world. And then they were instructed to go a little bit farther inland to make sure they were not too close to perhaps um, the Spanish Navy. So they went to Jamestown, but they first stopped, made a stop in Virginia Beach. And then I like to joke, made their way up Interstate 64 uh, north of Williamsburg to Jamestown. Started here in my backyard. And you had been a lawyer before you became a politician, if I may call you that. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so my background is I graduated from William & Mary, and then I went on, was in private practice, candidly got uh, a little bored by private practice, became a prosecutor in Virginia Beach, uh, loved that job, and then got kind of brought back into uh, the political arena. When a friend of mine decided that Scott, former Congressman Scott Ridgell decided to run for Congress, uh, a great example, I think, of a Jeffersonian and a servant leader. He views it as a season of service. He served three terms and then uh, retired. And then uh, shortly thereafter, I got asked by several people if I would consider running for House of Delegates. I had said no twice before, candidly. Uh, and I guess the third time I was convinced to run. Uh, the other two times, I thought my family was too young. And uh, I loved my wife, but I decided to run and serve, served in Mr. Jefferson's body for six years, and then uh, felt called to run for this position. But yeah, I think I've talked to you before, Clay, but you know, I got elected in the fall of 2015, which was almost 50 years to the day that my mother fled communist Cuba as a scared 19-year-old penniless and homeless teenage girl. She left October 11th of 1965. And so it was not lost on me what a remarkable moment that was, that almost 50 years to the day that she left, she was able to walk into a voting booth and vote for her son, get a ballot with my name on it, after leaving a country with no consent of the governed to be able to then vote for her son to represent her in the oldest continuous democracy in the Western Hemisphere. Boy, that is a, uh, that's what I call the American miracle. It is a miracle. We are not a we're still striving to become a more perfect union, but sometimes it's okay to step back and recognize that this is a real miraculous uh, system that we have, as imperfect as it is. And I love to say America is a nation of second chances. We've given more second chances to more people for more background, more faiths, more races, more creeds than any country in the history of the world. And if you don't believe me, go to a naturalization ceremony. It's my favorite thing to do as a member of the House of Delegates. It's my earliest memory was one of my earliest memories is seeing my mother become a U.S. citizen when I, when I was a child. And I remember teaching her the Pledge of Allegiance, which she had to learn in order to become a U.S. citizen. That was the first time I realized my mother was not born in this country. Because I remember thinking, wait, how come I know the pledge and you don't? And as a six-year-old child teaching my mother the Pledge of Allegiance so she can then recite that at the naturalization ceremony was uh, such a formative imprint on my soul that we're different, that this country is different. And it's, it is a miracle. It is something to cherish and to preserve and to protect. 
And that is something that I hope to try to do in my, my own small way in whatever level and whatever uh, position that I have, either as a private citizen or in as a public servant. And uh, whenever I speak to high school groups, I always ask them, you know, why did my mother come here? She was desperate to live in a society that recognized that she had individual rights that did not come from a government politician or from somebody in power, that they were sacred and they were inalienable. That's why I've always been really from my mother. Sometimes it takes an immigrant to get a perspective on this country, but my mother always revered Mr. Jefferson. Because I have said before, and I know we've had some discussions, but those words laid out in the Declaration are some of the most transformative words that define man's relationship with government and power. And I, what I've tried to illustrate to people, we're coming up, the 250th anniversary is coming up in just four years. 2026 will be here before we know it. And those words, they're uttered in every single gulag and political prisoners. They know those words, that they have certain inalienable rights. And, and so it is, it is both, obviously, when Mr. Jefferson wrote it, he was addressing it to, at the time, the most powerful empire of the world I'd ever seen. But there is a universality to that that is applied throughout all generations. And, and they know that. And there's a reason why it's recited in the streets of Hong Kong and in Tiananmen Square. And the images that got leaked out of Cuba when they had the uprising last year in the spring, they were waving our flag, is because at the end of the day, at our very, very best, we are that last best hope on earth, which people attributed to Abraham Lincoln, but as you know, it was actually Thomas Jefferson who first used that term. And we were, what, 20 years old as a country? We were considered a backwalker, backwater struggling democracy, former British colony and Jefferson's genius I always thought was that he understood where we could head as a country and be as imperfect as he was. I think we all recognize he was an imperfect man but at his very best Jefferson had an ability to project an aspirational goal for us as a people and as individuals and as a nation that I think was in some ways timeless and I think we can learn a lot from um a lot from his thinking and his writing about the very best part of uh, what we can be as a, as a country and a people. Well, there's so many threads I want to pick up here. Uh, number one, your mother voted for you in 19 in 2015. Right. It is a secret ballot. How do you know she voted for you? <laughs> well, she did tell me she was very proud to vote for me. So she did tell me. <laughs> she, she confessed. All right. Just wanted to be clear about that. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour. We'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We continue our interview with Jason Mearies, the newly elected Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Jefferson, you brought him up. She revered him. We revere him. That's how we know each other. How do you balance our deep admiration for him, not just for the Declaration of Independence, one of the most important things ever written in the history of the world, but all of his capacity as an architect and as a writer and as a political statesman and scientist and inventor and so on. How do you balance all of that admiration that we have for him with the problem that's engulfing him now, which is that he's so deeply complicit in the problem of race and slavery that in many quarters now, he's just not acceptable anymore. And as you know, statues are being defaced. Some statues are coming down. Schools are changing their names. What's the right way to set the balance here, do you think? I think in some ways, when I look at Mr. Jefferson, I think he's a mirror reflection on on, on us. I, I think that uh, in, in our, as our capacity to do so much amazing good, there is clear there has been some horrific original sins, is the term I've used uh, sometimes to apply what, what we have done as a people. One, obviously, uh, our treatment of the Native Americans, uh, we I mean, we broke pretty much every treaty that we ever, every agreement we ever made. Um, and then the, the, sin, the sin of slavery, um, you know, the great irony is in 1619, which is uh, when, and I was there at the 400th anniversary of the uh, founding of the, of the oldest democratic body in the Western Hemisphere, the Virginia House of Delegates. We had a ceremonial uh, gathering in Jamestown in, in 2019, in which I was there in the summer. The great irony is just a few months later, um, the White Lion landed at uh, Old Point Comfort off the coast of what is now Hampton, Virginia, and introduced the stain of slavery, which has spread throughout the country. And in some ways, the contradiction of Jefferson is the same contradiction of America, capacity for uh, idealism. But I would say this, and this is what I always like to point out, is it is his standard his aspirational standard that we always point to to rectify our harms. You know, G.K. Chester has said that America is the only country to ever be founded on a creed. And Margaret Thatcher said, you know, the nations in Europe emerged out of history. Only America emerged out of philosophy. And I think who is the American that best summed up and captured that creed was Martin Luther King on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, where he said those inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that were endowed by our creator. He cited Jefferson when he referred very famously in that speech to there is a promissory note I'm here to collect. He didn't appeal to Karl Marx. He didn't appeal to some foreign philosopher. He appealed directly to Jefferson, to our own conscience. And I think understanding that aspect that as flawed as he is and if you go to the the capital of virginia where he designed every day i would walk in and there's a statue of mr jefferson and it's called the architect of liberty flawed architect and wrote some monstrous things uh you know sometimes you do have to step back and realize we live in a in a uh we're judging people live in a five mile per hour world in a modern era but even for that era, there were people that understood, obviously, um, that slavery was intrinsically evil. 
but even then he was, he was a flawed architect, but it was those standards and those ideals that Martin Luther King and every time, whether it's women's suffrage or, or equal rights or anytime we've, we've always appealed to those standards. I think that's the first thing I have to recognize. And then the universality of the, of the fact, which I referenced, which is individuals around the globe point to those words that Mr. Jefferson wrote to in turn better their own society. We have, we are a nation of second chances and uh, we have a lot of difficult issues. We have to come together as a people and work together. Uh, but I was struck by, by something that um, a friend of mine noted to me when we were talking about racial reconciliation and African-American pastor. And he told me, he said, you know, we have a lot to work on. He's traveled extensively, but he said, you know, we, we have made so much more progress even than a lot of other areas of the world. And if you don't believe me, go on YouTube and turn on the opening ceremony of the Summer Games in Tokyo and watch the Parade of Nations. And only in the United States, when the United States walks out, do you see a real multiracial, multiethnic, and they're all Americans. They're all Americans. And I think that's remarkable. Our two most famous global Americans, I think I saw one poll of the last 50 years were Muhammad Ali and Michael Jordan, right? The most famous Americans from a pop culture, just athletic standpoint. And so when you say, when you, if I was go to you, client, say, close your eyes and picture a, a Parisian or a Frenchman or an Englishman, right? Uh, but if I was to say, picture an American, it can be anything and everyone. And I think that's the beauty of it. I think that's the beauty of it. And so the last naturalization ceremony I spoke at, there were 116 people from 57 different countries. And it was a rainbow of individuals from all backgrounds. And they understand that this country is very, very unique. And they're so grateful. And whenever I speak, I talk about the aspirational aspect of Mr. Jefferson. I don't hide his faults. And they all get that. And it's amazing how many of them absolutely know those words and know Mr. Jefferson, and they learned them in their home country. Uh, so that's how I reconcile that is, in some ways, he's a mirror reflection to ourselves, uh, did unspeakable evil, personally failed in so many ways, but also every time we as a country has, has advanced towards greater equality and freedom, we've always go to, gone back to those immortal words and his influences and so I think that's what I recognize that is that his fruits are uh, still with us today. And I think we can recognize the great, great good while also acknowledging some of the horrible, horrible bad as well. And, you know, I know, Clay, you've noted before, sometimes as, as somebody who's admirer of Jefferson, he was a very different man when he was younger than as he got older on this issue. And for his time was in some ways when he was in the legislature, actually introduced some legislation at the time was considered incredibly progressive. And then not sure what changed in his heart, but uh, obviously it's just sad. It's sad to see in that area was one of the few areas he did not grow as an individual. He actually diminished and retrogressed. I don't know if that's the right word, but um, which is. Yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't have said that better, Jason. That's, that's a beautiful statement. I want to get us to your attorney generalship here in a minute, but just to ask you this, if William and Mary decided tomorrow to pull down his statue and to try to wash him away from William and Mary, what would your reaction be? I would be very, very upset. I'd be extremely upset and angry. And I think the alumni's 
uh, and I've talked to a lot of them, would would be, uh, boy, would William and Mary uh, hear from a lot of very upset alumni. It is, Mr. Jefferson is our most famous alumni, as, and Mr. Monroe is is up there as well. But I think the overall influence that Mr. Jefferson has had on a global scale for political prisoners that are suffering in a way of uh, facing tyranny, the fact that it, he was the inspiration. Uh, obviously, I tell everybody when we look at the contradiction of Jefferson, look at Mr. Lincoln, look at how Abraham Lincoln approached it. And he, in many ways, more than anybody in our history, recognized Jefferson's faults. But this is what I tell people. If you want to caricature Jefferson as just and focus just on his evils and how he was a notorious racist, there was a lot of people that have that tried to do that in the past to try to themselves justify the, the worst parts and ignore the fact that he said that that we have an animal rights that um, endowed by our creator that we're all created equal. And so uh, Lincoln, more than anybody, uh, I think, recognized that. So I'd be very upset to your point. I think he deserves to be recognized. I think I I've I read somewhere that there is a a, a letter to the editor or something or the student newspaper about the UVA that every time a student walked by a statue of Thomas Jefferson at UVA, they get triggered. And I guess my response is, then why did you go to UVA? There's a lot of other colleges you can go to. If that's going to bother you, this is a free country. But don't take away, um, and, and one of the great founders of this country, uh, because it, there's, there's parts of his life that may offend you, there's an easy solution to that choose to go to another school. And that's just that's just my philosophy. And I think we gain more as a people if we um, look at, at the best parts of Jefferson's life, acknowledge the worst, than just try to erase them out of history. Because they say the only thing you learn from history, Clay, is uh, people never learn from history. And I <laughs> well, think- Well, they, they could go to Columbia, uh, Hamilton's <laughs> College, if, if, you know, if, they're, if they're that upset. All right, so right. as Attorney General, Will you have to wrestle with this? Is this an issue that rises to the to the office of the AG? You know, the the kind of what's going on in Richmond, what's going on all over? Yeah, the I, I mean maybe. I mean I I admit I I like to joke that the 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 name the title Attorney General elect is uh, one with a nice title with no authority and and no official staff and no ability to do anything. This is what I would say is. I'm a, I want to be an attorney general that calls balls and strikes and follow and apply the law. And I'll defend laws, even those laws that are currently on the book in Virginia that maybe I voted against. I take an oath of allegiance uh, on January 15th to the United States Constitution, to the Virginia Constitution, and to execute faithfully the laws of the, the Commonwealth of Virginia. I, I don't take an oath of allegiance to any political party. I don't take an oath of allegiance to Governor-elect Glenn Youngkin, even though I consider him a friend. My oath of allegiance is to the to protect and preserve the Constitution and the people of Virginia. And so if you William and Mary is trying to remove anything, are they following the law? That's the first standard I'm going to care on on anything. What does the law say? Uh, do they have the authority? Now, I have a I have a bully pulpit, as they say. And so I can voice my own displeasure. Uh, now, I would say this. I have not heard anything that William and Mary is trying to remove any statute of Thomas Jefferson. So I don't want to have any of your readers or listeners think that, but that'd be my first standard on any of that is, are they following the law? What does the law say? And calling balls and strikes mean that maybe even if I disagree with what they're doing is, well, what does the law say? And do they have uh, do they have the authority to do what they're requesting? And that's how I want to follow it as attorney general. 
So let's say that that's something like this happened at UVA or somewhere. I don't want to single out William and Mary. I, I take your point. Uh, but it happened within the Commonwealth. And you investigated it, and it turns out it's it's perfectly legal. Would you say something like, however much I abhor this as the attorney mm -hmm. general, I recognize that this is a legal yeah. proceeding, and um, I'm sorry you're doing it, but but I, you know, you're yeah. right. You can do it. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm going to be a balls and strikes guy. I, I will explain why I think maybe it is the wrong thing to do philosophically, but at the at the same side, they have the legal authority to do it. Citizens or voters are upset, then they can go to the general assembly, petition their elected representative, request that they pass a law that maybe strips them of that authority or, or says explicitly this Thomas Jefferson statute can't be removed. I mean, again, that we're probably going the newest of the law, and, and, and I have not researched this, but in that hypothetical scenario, I think you have to take that role. That needs to be, I think, some of your philosophy is um, this is what the law is. I'm going to follow the law, even if I disagree with it. And I think I think that's how we survive in a rule of law based nation. And there's a way and a mechanism to change the law. And that's uh, through our elected representatives. You know, the people who are reading this or from around the country who don't know you might conclude one of two things. Either you're a servant leader hero or that you're naive, because if you've been following <laughs> what's going on with our legal system, the attorneys general around the country, the kind of the shenanigans and the the politicization of the Justice Department. Cynics would say, "Give me a break!" You know that 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 there there are no offices that are that are balls and strikes anymore. I mean, how worried are you about the politicization of of the kind of work that you do in your life? I think politics is poisoned so much in our society uh, right now, and and I had pointed out that one of my biggest problems has been the way the news media has covered it. If you turn on either Fox News or MSNBC, you would think everybody either has a red jersey or a blue jersey. And all they do is they get in a room and they yell at each other. And the reality is 99% of Americans do not live their life like that. They don't. That's a healthy thing. We have never been a Washington-centric focus society. And that goes back to Alexis de Tocqueville, where we were kind of a growing nation and the royal court sent him over from France to get to say what what how, how does America tick and Alexis de Tocqueville thought well if you really want to know about France you go to Paris if you really want to know what makes England work you go to London he goes to Washington DC immediately and he's crestfallen and it's literally just a mud strewn roads and it's backwater little town and he realizes wait America is not Washington central Washington Focus, and he obviously did his tour of America, which became democracy in America. And I think whether it was by accident, whether it was that happenstance meeting with Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Hamilton and Mr. Madison, uh, where they decided the Capitol would be in Washington and D.C., but for whatever reason, our cultural capital and our political capital and our business capital are not in one city. I mean, currently it's L.A., Washington, D.C., and New York. And so by that, I mean... Uh, to understand America, de Tocqueville went to America, and what he found was Americans were obviously individualistic, but they were also very communally oriented. There is not a, a society on the globe that gives the amount of money to charity or the amount of volunteer hours as Americans. And that communal sense, I think, has, and that civic-minded sense has always been part of the American character. And one of the things you quickly see is the media portrayal of America, which is we're always at each other's throats. Clay, you and I both have dear friends 
that we socialize with, we interact with every day that think very differently than we do politically. And I would argue most Americans do as well. And um, we don't live our lives the way the media maybe wants to portray that. And I think more elected officials realize that they're much more concerned about their local community or their child's school or, you know, going to the, the game this weekend, then maybe what's happening, what political food fights happening in Washington, D.C. or even in their respective state capital. I think that is a healthy thing. I think that is a healthy perspective, a sign that I kept outside my office in the General Assembly. I think you may have seen it, but it's one of my favorite quotes from Thomas Jefferson, which it says, you know, I never considered a difference of opinion in politics, religion, or philosophy as cause for withdrawing from a friend. And I had that outside my door of my office. And that's the way most Americans are. And boy, do people in Washington, D.C. need to get a little dose of perspective. I have this portrait of Ronald Reagan over my background. And one of his, my favorite quotes from Ronald Reagan was at his first inaugural. And he said this, he said, how can you claim to love your country if you don't first love your fellow countrymen? And we really need more people that have that mindset because we have a lot of big problems in this country. And a wise Marine told me this. He said, you know, if you go to Arlington National Cemetery and you walk along those stars of David's and those crosses, there's not an R or a D next to anyone's name. And so always be mindful that someone that maybe thought very differently than you politically gave the last full measure of devotion for this country. In other words, if you're on the opposite side politically, you're not my enemy. <laughs> you're not my enemy. So stop acting like it. If that is anything I wish would happen in the modern political discourse is stop acting. That doesn't mean that we don't have profound differences and philosophical differences, but we have a lot more that unites us rather than divides us. And um, I think that's an important perspective to have. You're saying that the two ends of the, of the media perspective, MSNBC perhaps on the one side and Fox and others on the other side, um, distort the actual nature of American life and American discourse and that so if that's the case if most of us are somewhere towards the center and and and, and we're not consumed by that kind of vitriol and and demonization of the other then how do we fix this problem aside from turning off our television sets <laughs> I think turning off our television sets could be a, a good important step but like one of my guide stars in my life that one of my mentors used to tell me is uh, civility is not weakness. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We now continue our special conversation with the Attorney General of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Jason Mieres. You were doing all this important and good work down there in Virginia Beach, and now you've gone on, you're gonna be the Attorney General here in just a, a number of days. Um, is it like wanting to be student council president? You just want it, but you have no idea what it involves. I'm sure that's not true of you, but <laughs> name, name five things that an Attorney General of Virginia does. Somebody joked with me, it's like, you're like the dog that caught the car, now you have to figure out how to drive it, right? <laughs> no, the, it, is, uh, it is humbling for me to, uh, you know, given my background, uh, that I will take the same office once held by Edmund Randolph and George Wythe and John Marshall. That is a, um, a remarkable thing, and it's a, it's a humbling thing. Um, listen, you are, the, the Attorney General is an interesting intersection of both law, policy, and politics. You're both the lawyer for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, you also represent the state and a variety of state agencies. Um, on this, on the civil side, you you also on the criminal side. Some people refer to the office as you're the top cop or top prosecutor in the state. So there's a large criminal division. Um, you know, major crimes and emerging threats is a is a uh, so uh, computer crimes uh, fraud. Um, you do a lot of joint works with with the feds on on uh, say things like working on things like human trafficking, which is a huge issue. Uh, for me, and then, uh, for example, all the university councils that are every single at every single college and university of Virginia works for the attorney general. So, it is the intersection of so many different areas. Uh, there's really not an area in state government that does not uh, touch the office. Um, uh, the attorneys that advise the Port of Virginia work for the attorney general. So, on multiple levels, both criminal and civil. And then obviously you have the ability, if you so choose, to uh, sue on behalf of Virginia federal government if you think there's federal overreach, and I believe in federalism. And so you have that ability as well. But it is a, uh, it is a fascinating intersection. I'm thrilled and humbled, um, you know, and, and if there's anything I've tried to instill in the people I want to come work with me is this sense of I want a standard of both excellence and that you are there to serve not to be served. I think if your salary is being paid by the hardworking men and women, the taxpayers of Virginia, you need to have that mindset that you are also a public servant and you need to have that servant type attitude. Um, and um, not to be afraid to admit when, you, when you're wrong. I think that's important too. I think a lot of people feel like there's no accountability sometimes in government and I want a sense of accountability and transparency. And so, Looking when when Theodore Roosevelt became the police commissioner of New York, he ran up the first day. He charged up the the stairs and said, "What are we going to do? What do we, what? Tell me what we need to be doing. Let's start." He just wanted to do something. He didn't really know what he needed to do yet because he didn't know what it was like to be the police commissioner. Do you have a Do you have an agenda? Are there Are there issues that you want to particularly make your own, or are there things you perceive to be problems that have to get addressed? In the well, it, you know, if you have followed a little bit of you know, I'm a big believer that if you make promises and pledges, you follow through to, you know, I, I, when I ran, I said a lot, so did Glenn, but I said a lot, you know, hire me to go work for you. Uh, that's what I told and asked the people of Virginia, hire me to go work for you as your next attorney general. Now, there's a couple of things that happened in Virginia in the last couple of years that 
uh, made a lot of headlines. Uh, public safety has become a big issue. Our murder rates, the highest it's been in a couple of decades. And, and so talking a lot about the public safety aspect and, and a focus on that, I wanna make sure that we learn from our mistakes, have some accountability, move forward. Um, and then using the office also to, to preach both civility and, and uh, finding areas of uh, commonality with, with Virginians of all backgrounds. Because I recognize that on day one, I'm gonna recognize, I'm gonna be the attorney general for every Virginian, including those that didn't vote for me. All right, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, the country is really confused about voter rights. And as you know, in some states, legislation is being passed that would appear, at least to its critics, to be uh, voter restriction laws. To what extent does the Attorney General of Virginia uh, have to th think about these questions? Well, the, the voter laws are determined by the General Assembly. And, um, and as a result, they will, pass, they will pass the laws and I will, I will defend them because they're the duly elected body. I'm not going to arbitrarily decide that we're not going to defend certain laws. And that's maybe a little bit where I'm a little bit different than my predecessor. We, voter ID is something we've had on the books in Virginia for some time. And, uh, you know, he just decided he didn't want to defend the law. It, when somebody challenged it in court, an outside law firm had to be hired at paying lawyers 400 bucks an hour because he didn't want to do that job. That's a different attitude. My attitude is the General Assembly passed it, I'm going to defend it. My general philosophy in all of that is it should be easy to vote and hard to cheat. That's my standard. Easy to vote, hard to cheat. People should have confidence in this. And I do think that's an important aspect of what we've seen in polling after the 2016 election. You had a lot of my friends on the other side of the aisle that really questioned the veracity of the election results. And obviously, we know the, the horrific things that happened after 2020, where people on my side of the aisle, too many of them questioned the veracity. And my point on all that is, Let's make sure we we have full confidence in the system, easy to vote, hard to cheat. And the great irony in all of this, Clay, is uh, there was a lot of individuals on my side of the aisle that opposed early voting. There was a 45, Virginia went to 45-day, no-excuse, absentee ballot. And I don't think I would have won, but for that, because you, you saw a record number of rural Virginians, and you know, it's much harder. Sometimes their polling places are much more difficult. It'll take them 25 minutes to get to a polling place where in most suburban or urban areas, it'll take you five to 10. And there is an ability for the rural vote in Virginia turned out at levels that nobody had ever seen before in a governor's race. And so the great irony is that the the 45 day no excuse, which most most of my friends on my side of the aisle opposed, actually benefited them. And so that's the great irony People don't know how to predict what happens in these races, and and you never can tell the end result. That's for darn sure. But listen, I'm going to defend whatever laws the General Assembly passes, unless I think it violates the U.S. Constitution or the Voting Rights Act, and that's different, and I'll have a different attitude. But the, the Constitution gives the states a lot of leeway in deciding uh, how they want to do their election law. And I think that's probably, that's a good thing, I think. And so, but I'm defend what, what is a purview of the General Assembly. And we have divided government in Virginia right now. The state Senate is controlled by uh, Democrats. The House is now controlled by Republicans. And so uh, I think whatever is coming out of the General Assembly, my hunch is going to be a result of, of compromise. And in Virginia, we call it the Virginia way, which means that R's and D's can learn to work together and get a lot of stuff done. 
And I hope and pray that the poisonous politicization and partisanship we see in Washington gets stuck in traffic and never makes its way down 95 south to Richmond. Well, there's certainly enough traffic on the Beltway to do that. Right. Um, so the things that come out of your mouth are so rational and decent and and, and historically thoughtful. Were you, did, I went, didn't follow the race. Do you get a lot of heat from the from the far right for being so rational? People took shots at me, but I do say that the political spectrum in some ways isn't as a left-right continuum as much as a, it's almost like a horseshoe. You get too far to the left, you get too far to the right, whether it's the populist left or the populist right, uh, they're remarkably similar in the sense that they um, end up shouting at each other. And um, I've always said I'm a, I'm a Reagan Republican. Um, I believe in both the aspirational nature of this country. But I also get a perspective. The more you study history, the more you realize that no matter what I do in this role, I'm going to be forgotten. One of my favorite things to do at the Virginia Capitol was I would go at night and they have on the first floor of the Capitol photos of past sessions where they would take profiles of all the members of that session from 1913 or 1915 or 1878. And what you quickly realize, you look at all these names, somebody 100 years from now is going to be in this seat. It's not my seat. It's the people that elected me seat. And have that sense of humility, approach it with humility. I tell my daughters, gratitude is one of the most underrated of all human traits, and ingratitude is one of the ugliest. I have gratitude I've been elected to serve, and everything that I'm doing right now, um, it's likely going to be forgotten. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think your job is to serve, not to be served, serve in this capacity, but my value and my self-worth in my life does not come from this title uh, or any job. And I think the second it does, is the second that you get in trouble. And maybe I'm naive. And so far, the good Lord has protected me and protected my heart. And I hope to be able to continue that moving forward. You know, if you looked at those photographs and they went back to the beginning, those might be people who are forgotten. But in one of them, there would be a Jefferson and another a Monroe and another a Wilson. I mean, there are people that that are that are not that is true. forgotten. <laughs> um, so, all right. Last question is a giant one. So we don't have time to really address it much. But how worried are you about the American Republic? Because for the first time in my life, and I'm older than you are, I'm hearing we're at risk. Democracy could die. America could collapse. That our system of checks and balances is not working any longer, or the guardrails barely held that we had. We just survived a, a coup attempt and barely, and it may not be over yet, that we're descending into incivility at the same time our political system is in a what appears to be a slow motion collapse. How worried are you about the future of this country? I mean, listen, I think our political system is is clearly pretty broken. I think in some ways, uh, a wise person once said that politics is downstream from culture. And as our culture has gotten more coarse, there is our politics and our political discourse. But I also think, going back to my earlier point, we're not a Washington-focused country. Most Americans candidly live their lives and don't think about Washington which I think is a healthy thing, and that gives me a great faith. But I will tell you this, anytime you think this country is, is on the brink and on the edge, go to a naturalization ceremony. And that moment where everybody raises their hand and they take the oath of allegiance <clears throat> to this country, that is an amazing moment because they swear off any allegiance to any foreign country or government or king. 
there's tears in their eyes, and they know, indeed, that when Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Lincoln describe this as the last best hope on earth, they understand that. And so if you ever doubt that, that this country is great, and if you ever doubt, go there, and that will make you so refreshed. That will make you feel so exuberant. That will give you such gratitude. Go there. You will be renewed. One of my bucket lists is um, my understanding is on July 4th of every year, they do a naturalization ceremony in Monticello. I've been there. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing. I I never have done it. My hope is to do it in the next four years. But if you ever doubt that, go there. Go to that moment. And uh, because I know our history, I know we've had some really difficult chapters. Uh, You know, I tell people, you think our election was difficult. The Jefferson Adams election was a lot more a lot more difficult. We've gone through upheaval that, you know, we had a lot of upheaval uh, in the 60s and in 70s in the past. We've gotten through this stronger, better as a people. Uh, I have such faith in the American spirit and the American ingenuity because we are, we are fundamentally a good and decent country. And I'll end with this. Um, I was listening to a podcast of a recent Indian American immigrant. He was describing the first time that he brought his parents from India, came over to visit him, and they get off the airplane, and they're driving away from the airport, and they pass and adopt a highway sign, you know, adopted by a, a rotary club, and his parents are baffled. Well, what does this mean? Do they own the highway? Well, no, they, they don't. Well, what does that mean, adopt the highway? Well, they come out, you know, once or twice a month, and they go along the side of the road, and they pick up trash. Well, does that mean they, do they get paid for that? No. Do they get to charge a toll? No. Well, why would they do that? Well, because they want to beautify their area. And they were, they were mystified by this. And that is America, not Washington, not the Washington food fights, this sense of civic engagement, civic duty, this sense of, you know, I do a lot of, of race money and, and, and gone there before wreaths across America where they, every December, you have volunteers that distribute thousands of wreaths to lay on the tomb of soldiers at Arlington National Seminary and other veteran ceremonies. That is the essence of the American spirit. We see a problem. We want to we want to get involved. And so that's why I have such faith. Go to a naturalization ceremony, get involved in your community, turn off your TV. You'll make a better America by doing it. So here, uh, as we close, I have a couple of quick things to say to you. Number one, thank you. Number two, what I've learned in addition to much else in this interview is that the catastrophe that brought your mother to the U.S. in 1965 is, is why you're speaking the way you are today, because you have that experience in your actual family yeah, line my, of this. Yeah. And I think that, that deepens your deepens this sense. You, you're a Tocquevillian, which is amazing to me. You just what you said about Adopt a Highway you know, could be straight out of a 21st century remix of, of Tocqueville's Democracy Amen. in America. But here's what I want to say as we close. I hope we do this in six months and a year. I hope you're not filled with bandages and 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 being held up by your aides. I want to see how this weather's on you, really, and I hope you'll uh, commit to that. Absolutely. Finally, the Fourth of July. You know, you're now you're the Attorney General. You have massive power. Here's what I think. A lot. I don't know if you've really studied this, but a lot of states have Attorney Generals who have a kind of how should I put it, a kind of a humanities scholar that they pal with and take to things. You know, want to go to. I think you should adopt me yes. as a scholar, and we should be at the 4th of July together at Monticello, and I'll be saying to you now, this is- That wonderful. would be fantastic. We'll find Don't you think that, that you need done. a humanities scholar? <laughs> I think we can learn a lot from the humanities, and uh, I tell people all the time, 
you know, when freedom flourishes, it's not just uh, for an individual, it's, it's the arts flourish, it's thinking flourishes. Uh, and so we need more of that, not less. So Clay, we'll make we'll we'll that a way yes. to make that happen. I'm going to take that as a yes. I, we could be there. This could be such an enjoyable day. We'll go out to a pub. <laughs> uh, but will you commit to six months from now having a, 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 a like a dental appointment to see how? Yes, yes. We, we will We will get through that. I'll be glad six months from now to sit down with you. What That'd a great delightful. thing. Say hello to your family. This has been a marvelous interview. I hope that Victoria is happy with it and everybody else. Uh, I appreciate all your, appreciate what you do, Clay. I, I think you do such a good job elevating the discourse and in your discussions and both revisiting the past, trying to learn from the past and discussing uh, the issues. And so I, I appreciate what you do, making us better citizens. So thank you. Appreciate it. God bless you and good luck. See you soon. Thank you. God bless. David, it was so moving to me when I was interviewing Jason because he, at several points, he got choked up. You know, a lot of what he said, if you were just reading it in a transcript, might lead you to think, well, that's the usual bread and butter. That's sort of the boilerplate of the public servant, and he's talking the way they do. But it turns out he means it, and he means it with deep sincerity. He is truly a servant leader. You don't run across those very often, and he's still an idealist after a number of terms as a member of the Virginia assembly and i was so much a believer in him i said at the end i suppose you have to be governor now <laughs> he slightly rebuked me but uh but i think that he's if he wants a, a big political future it's there for him thanks to jason and all the other people who agreed to be interviewed for this program we'll see you all next week for another important edition of the thomas jefferson hour the Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701 575 0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite Number no. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. <laughs>